Welcome to the PeaceWorks Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Moles. I'm a pastor and biblical counselor who helps churches and families confront the evil of domestic violence and promote healthy, God-honoring relationships. Welcome back to the PeaceWorks Podcast, everyone. I'm so excited that you're joining us for this episode, and I know you're excited because This is part two of our conversation with Tabitha Westbrook. And if you caught part one, I know you're really excited uh, to hear what's going to happen this time as we talk uh, a little bit more about our friendship and the work that we do uh, in domestic abuse and among survivors. But before I get into that conversation, I want to remind you of PeaceWorks University. PeaceWorks University is our online membership community, and if you are benefiting from what you're learning from the PeaceWorks podcast, then PeaceWorks University is your next best step. Head on over to chrismoles.org to learn more about PeaceWorks University and all the things that we have available in the membership. So as I said, it's part two um, of our conversation with Tabitha Westbrook, and hopefully you have visited her at tabithawestbrook.com and learn more about her recently released uh, digital course, and we are so glad uh, that she's back with us today. So, Tabby, welcome back to the PeaceWorks podcast. It is awesome to be here. We had a great discussion last time. We're going to shift gears just a little bit because we're going to talk uh, some about something, uh, a topic that I know you and I are both passionate about, and that's partnerships and cooperation, church, counselor, and I think uh, for our listeners, you guys that are listening in, Tabitha's a great person to talk about this because she's very deliberate and intentional on wanting to help and serve the church. So where do you think we should start, Tabitha? Where would you like to start with this concept of church partnerships and counselor partnerships? Well, let's start at the beginning. Like, you need to know that you need to. Yeah, absolutely. Right? <laughs> so for our pastors, um, do I need to introduce myself again, by the way? I think you can, just in case somebody stumbled across the podcast. Okay. What do I know? I'm just yeah, the host. In case you don't know who I am by now. <laughs> in case you don't know who I am. Um, my name is Tabitha Westbrook. I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist, licensed clinical mental health counselor, licensed professional counselor, certified clinical trauma professional, and AAMFT approved supervisor. We're practiced in Wake Forest, North Carolina. Um, and I also have the online class that Chris mentioned. Um, so I think our first thing is that pastors need to know that they need to partner um, outside of maybe just their body. And I know that some churches have counseling ministries of sorts in their um, within their, you know, spaces, communities, buildings, paradigms. I'm not quite sure because churches call it all different things depending on your denomination. Um, so parish, you know, wherever you call it, but sometimes that's not enough because um, there are things that are going to exceed your capacity. And, you know, domestic abuse, coercive control, complex trauma, some of those things are on that list. Um, Child abuse, childhood sexual abuse, and just a trigger warning for people listening, we are going to talk about hard things. If you find yourself triggered, please step away. Please take care of yourself. Please come back to it. This is going to be here. I know a lot of survivors listen to this podcast, and I just want to be really sensitive to that, that um, you are, you're allowed to be where you are. And if you need to step away and come back, step away and come back. There's nothing wrong with it. Take care of yourself. Um, but 
I think there's, there's a lot of misunderstanding about counseling as a profession to begin with. And there's good reason for pastors to be concerned, to be honest. There are some counselors who are not what we would call, well, they're hostile to the gospel. Let's right. just call it what it is, right? right? <laughs> and that definitely can make you fearful. And if you're looking at maybe what's out there in the media and you think, gosh, this represents the whole profession, that wouldn't be the truth, right? There are a lot of us out here who are very biblically sound, very godly, but also licensed. And that isn't necessarily mutually exclusive. And I know that it kind of depends on what camp you fall into as to whether or not you think there can be any value in a licensed counselor. Um, And I think there is some fear of like, you know, are you going to stick to the Bible? Do you hold Orthodox Christian values, things like that. And I, and I think those are right and good questions to ask, right? Like, I would never say to a pastor, like, you know, throw caution to the wind. Like, that's how we get in trouble right. <laughs> like, when we're not careful and kind and praying through things. Like, it's a bad idea. But I do think that it's really important for pastors to understand that there really is a good and viable way to partner with professionals in the community that can come alongside you, right? If we look at what God says about the body of Christ and how we're each different parts, we're a part that like maybe is a heart holding part, right? Like we help heal things. We help, you know, we're a facilitator of healing. And sometimes churches need that, especially small churches where you maybe don't even have like a lay counseling ministry in your, in your flock at all that we can be very valuable resources to help you understand things, to even help you write policies. I've helped churches do that and, you know, and really just come alongside you and be an asset. We are one body. Even if you don't believe counseling is a good thing, y'all, we're all going to be up in heaven one day. So we might as well get along right now. (laughs) Plus division is a hallmark of the enemy. And I'm pretty sure that the Bible says that people will know we're Christians by our love for one another. So I'm just going to throw that out there as well. Don't get now. Don't use too much scripture. We don't want to really get. <laughs> no. we, we wouldn't want to sound like we know what we're talking about. <laughs> I love it. I think one of the things that we try to communicate when we're training churches on, <clears throat> excuse me, on counseling ministry, on uh, intimate and uh, interpersonal discipleship, is sometimes as a problem becomes more severe and more captivating, it may require a deeper level of partnership from those who are mature and those who are skilled. And sometimes they can all be wrapped up in the same person. Like I I usually use my friend Greg Wilson as an example, someone who's highly skilled Mm -hmm. in an area of counseling, but then also is um, meets the qualifications of an elder and somebody who is highly mature. So sometimes they're in the one person, sometimes they're in partnership where maybe a pastor or an elder is working alongside a counselor. You can sign those MOUs. You can get yourself uh, a team-based approach that could really help. <clears throat> Excuse me, but when a when a problem is so severe that it, it goes to the top of that pyramid, uh, it is important to have both skilled and mature responses. And I think too, Tabby, you tell me where you stand on this. I think one of the m- mistakes that we've made in the church, is, and I'm going to do the counselor too. I think one of the mistakes we made in the church is we've tried to do everything in house. And I think mm-hmm. one of the mistakes that counselors have made is they have tried to do everything in house rather than mm-hmm. understanding that there are ways in which we can partner that will lessen each other's load or lighten each other's load, such as relying on you <clears throat> for trauma-based responses and highly skilled work, mm-hmm. but then you relying on the church for things that maybe you don't need to occupy your time with. 
that are going to be done better right. in groups and in discipleship. Absolutely. And, you know, I will say this: healing happens in community yeah. and it, the church can be a healing community. I can't hang out with my clients. Like we're not going to be friends. That is, that is a boundary that is healthy for me to keep. Right. It also legal yeah. and, you know, but the church can come alongside, can help with discipleship, can help with childcare, can help with practical needs, can help with friendship. You know, those are things, especially when someone's been in abuse dynamic that they're isolated. They may not even know how to make a friend in some ways, because they've been kept, you know, isolated from their families, from their church community, from their friends. And it's, you know, the spouse or nothing. Mm -hmm. And that is something that can be life-giving to a survivor is that church community and can be so healing. And I can't replicate that as a counselor and I'm not meant to. Very good. So maybe, maybe you can help us with this. What may be because there's a lot of different people who listen to the PeaceWorks podcast. What may be some tips for, let's say, our pastors who know they need to build these relationships, but like you say, are a little bit fearful? I mean, you can't just look at, I know the Yellow Pages doesn't exist anymore, but you can go online, I guess, <laughs> and somebody may have a set of praying hands beside their counseling practice name, but that doesn't mean anything. Just because you have a dove in it's your... It's like having a Jesus fish on your lumber company. Exactly. Yeah, we, we just don't know. So what might be some, some first steps a pastor can do to maybe vet and get to know whether this is a trustworthy partner? Absolutely. So I have some tips on that. So one is ask your congregation who they see. And be gracious. If you're just, if, if you've been in a place where you're like, I'm not sure I even trust counselors, like it makes me nervous. Maybe your theological underpinnings have, you know, or your denomination has been a little bit um, anti-counseling. Um, then, you know, be really nice to your congregants when you ask them this, because they might be a little bit afraid of you. So I'm just going to throw that out there. This is a great opportunity to shift, change, and move culture if one needed to do so as a pastor. Um, but ask them who they see and do they like them? You know, sometimes people will see people that they aren't thrilled with because they think they have no other choice, which is probably a whole other podcast episode right. on how to find a good counselor, um, but find out who they really like and then call them, like actually reach out to them. You can Google Christian counseling near me and Dr. Google will help you find a whole list of them. Mm -hmm. And then you call them and say, hey, I'm pastor so-and-so at this church. I'm interested in learning more about you and possibly partnering with you. And then the people that call you back, talk to them and they all better call you back. That's another soapbox moment I have for therapists, but we don't have time for that today. Um, <laughs> but, you know, talk to them, ask them questions, ask them pertinent questions about what they know about trauma, what they know about domestic abuse and coercive control, mm -hmm. what training they have had in that area, how many clients they see related to that, how they incorporate faith. That's a good question to ask. Um, the right answer is it depends on the client. And we can talk more about that in a minute. Yeah. Um, and I'll tell you why, because sometimes pastors get a little upset when I give that answer, right. but it's still the right answer. <laughs> um, but, um, and then, and then really just take notes, right? Because if you're calling 10 or 12 counselors, you might not remember who said what to you. You know, you've got a whole congregation to shepherd and care for. And so you might need to know that if you're farming it out to someone else, make sure that it's someone that you trust 
to give you information back, not the elder that hates counselors. Mm -hmm. Like that would not be the one to have call because they're going to be like, everybody's terrible. It's going to be like when the Israelites went into the land and everybody was like, oh gosh, there's giants there. And Joshua and Caleb are like, dude, it's fine. We got Jesus, you know? (laughs) (laughs) So like, don't send the the grumblers, not ideal, (laughs) but send wise people Mm -hmm. (laughs) and have them ask lots of questions. I appreciate that. We should really stay away. I think we should stay away. Maybe, maybe you you disagree. But you can you can pipe in on it. I, I think we should stay away from the purity test because we're not we're not engaging somebody to be an elder in our church. We're looking some right. for someone to help us in crisis care. And yes, we want a healthy view of the gospel. We want to make sure that they understand process of discipleship, and that they respect us and our theological positions, understanding that counselors are going to work with a wide variety of people and have to maintain integrity, whether it be with the Presbyterians or the Pentecostals. So no matter their theological background, I think the purity test is really, can we partner, can we work together in the, the goal of getting this person out of the, the eddy, you know, we're putting all the stuff back in the boat and getting them back into the river. And how can we help each other do that? And so I think my appeal to pastors would be make sure the purity tests are right and not restrictive. Going back to the gospel, the centrality of Christ, and how this counselor can help you in the sanctification process, not necessarily needing a crisis counselor to do all the discipleship of the church. In fact, I think that is something that too many counselors try to do. Yeah, I would agree completely, honestly. What are the open hand issues? Don't ask about those, right? It does not matter whether I am pre, mid, or post tribulation Jesus coming back. Do we all agree Jesus is coming back? Yes and amen. We're good, right? That's not going to be part of our counseling. (laughs) You know, how I can help you get over your trauma and heal, that's what we're doing. So that to me is an open hand issue. I do not care what you believe. Hopefully, you do not care what I believe. I have beliefs. If you want to ask me about them, I'll tell you. But you know, it doesn't matter for this. Do I believe that, do I believe that Jesus is the savior? Yes. And amen. I sure do. You know, do I believe that he heals and changes hundred percent? So like, these are things that you want to know, like, what's your view on Jesus is a good question. You know, whether or not I believe in miracles is irrelevant. I like to say I'm Baptocostal and my arms go all the way up to the top. Um, (laughs) supposed to just halfway. Um, But, you know, does that matter in my counseling? No, like you need to know I'm a woman of faith. You need to know that I love the Lord and that I seek to honor him in all that I do, including through counseling. The specifics of your denomination, that's between you and Jesus and your, you know, parishioners, to be honest. So you don't need that space from me, right? So those are when, you know, when I'm thinking about asking questions, those are the ones I do sometimes get asked whether I'm complementarian or egalitarian mm-hmm. to me. That's also an open hand issue. I, you know, there's abuse in both sides. So cool, whatever, <laughs> but you know, I will answer that question if I am asked, but it's not an essential in whether or not I'm a good trauma therapist and a good church partner. Yeah, I would agree. And I think, and some folks would really, you know, I would get some heat from some folks for saying that, but really as a counselor, at least, at least, my role as I've, as I've counseled, I want to respect the church on that. It's kind of like the, the divorce issue yeah, with me. Um, I have very strong views on divorce and remarriage, um, but I don't impose those on churches. If a church is asking me for help and they happen to disagree with me, we disagree theological on the divorces, how can I help you help this individual? 
because you're her right. ecclesiological authority, not me. So you right. might have some you might have some heavier rocks to move than I do, but right, it, I'm not going to come in and try to pastor your church. And I, I think that's something that um, pastors do fear, but they also need to really be like you say, look at those open hand issues, and say, is this mm-hmm. someone we can partner with? You know, on the flip side, right. I've encountered some great counselors who love to serve the church, whether they are part of that specific flavor or not. And on the other mm-hmm. side, I've run into some counselors who have tried to pastor the church or be a, have be a secondary uh, pastor by, by a proxy. And I don't know that that's really healthy. So what might be some tips for, for counselors and therapists and individuals who are looking to partner with churches? I think talking about the partnership, what are the boundaries and rules, right? Like it's okay to set up some parameters. Boundaries are a beautiful thing. And, you know, counselors are people too. You don't want a counselor who's seeking power and control, right? Like that's a whole hot mess, regardless of any person in a leadership position, whether it's a pastor, whether it's a counselor, whether it's a CEO, man. So I think, you know, I, when I come alongside churches, it is truly as a partner. I'm not going to tell you how to run your church. I do not care. Um, I may tell you where I think things aren't helpful, mm-hmm. like where it's not maybe supportive of survivors or supportive of calling perpetrators to repentance. Like I'm, I'm bold enough to tell you like, Hey, I'm seeing some things that maybe you might want to consider, but I'm not going to tell you what to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I need the same, right? Let me do what I do best. I've had churches that really struggle that maybe I don't read a scripture. I like pull out my Bible and read it verbatim. I am definitely a scripture paraphraser because I've had so many survivors come in. And if I quote certain verses, they read, they, it just, it harms them, right? Like, yes, God does in fact work all things together for good to those who love him and are called according to Christ Jesus. Straight up, man. However, you tell a survivor that when they're not ready to hear it, you're going to get throat punched right. and you deserve it, to be honest. So, you know, I may talk about God being good, <laughs> but I'm, I may not quote scripture verse by verse. And I've actually had churches ask me if I was a heretic because of it, mm-hmm. <laughs> to be honest. I'm like, no, I'm fairly certain I'm not. But, you know, that's something that like, so like, let us do, like, if we have a good symbiotic relationship let us do work together. And if you're curious, if you don't understand something, communication is beautiful. I think Brene Brown says it best, clear is kind. And so when we have a clear communication path where I can say, hey, I'm curious about this. My survivor told me that maybe the pastor or elder said this, can you tell me more so that I understand kind of your perspective? Cause like, it's like a game of telephone, right? Like we just need to talk actually to each other. Um, then that's good. Or if you hear something from the survivor and you're like, man, my count, you know, as a counselor, I'm hearing you said this, can we talk more about it? You can understand a little bit more about what was happening in the room and the space. And we can kind of work through it to make sure that we're still being a good team. So there has to be humility on both sides, which I think should be the hallmark anyway of leadership. I'm fairly certain it's a qualification for elder anyhow, um, that that's the biggest thing. And one of the other things is be willing to accept influence. Yeah. And this is a hard thing sometimes for pastors with female counselors. Mm-hmm. And I say that with grace and respect, um, but we are made in the image and likeness of God as a female as well, which means that I'm gifted with some things. And I also would like to note that females were the first to know that Jesus rose from the dead. I'm just going <laughs> to also throw that out there. <laughs> and, you know, we are recording this on Holy Week, so, so appropriate. Absolutely. 
perfect. Um, but that, you know, please trust if you're going to bring a counselor into the treatment team for your people, trust her and trust him. Right. And trust is built over time. And so you may go, okay, we're going to give this a try and we're going to really talk through some things and work on procedures and, and see it over time. I, if you haven't looked at Brene Brown's um, stuff in Dare to Lead, and I, again, she's not a religious writer by any means, but her stuff is very practical. She talks about braving and that's really the anatomy of trust. And that can be a helpful kind of acronym to help us go, okay, we, we need to learn to trust each other. And I have had absolutely outstanding relationships with churches where we have met and worked things out. Okay. How's this going to look? What are we going to do? How are we going to support what's everybody's roles? Right. Because again, clear is kind. And then we have regular meetings while we're working together, while we're seeing the survivor and Hey, here's what I'm seeing. Here's an area where maybe you guys could step in from a discipleship space. Hey, here's what we're kind of seeing play out behaviorally. I think there's some really big struggles with negative core beliefs and things like that, you know, is that a place you can step into? And it's really beautiful. And I have seen people get healed so much faster because they had that safe wraparound care mm -hmm. that one person or one entity just can't do alone. Absolutely agree. And, and those who have been listening to the PeaceWorks podcast for a while know that we use the term team-based approach. And, and I love that you continue to refer to the team. And I love the concept of wraparound care. One of the things that we say when we were uh, building teams is we would say, well, we want to pray together. Prayer's the first work. And so mm -hmm. if we're all on the same page on the gospel, then we really should be able to open our meetings and our conversations with prayer, close them with prayer, yes. and then be prayerfully dependent through the process. We want to trust each other, like Tabitha was saying. I want to trust you as the counselor to do your work well. I want uh, and, and think you should trust me as the pastor to do my work well or as the interventionist to do my work well or the advocate. We want to be open to feedback because, and I know for me doing perpetrator work, I'm getting part, parts of the story. I'm getting them mm -hmm. from the advocate on behalf of the victim. I'm getting them from the perpetrator. And I know full well I'm not getting the clearest picture possible. So I need to be open to feedback and, and listen and, and have other people interpreting what I'm hearing as well so that I can get a fuller picture. If I'm going to hold him accountable, I need all the information available. So there's a humility to that. And then respect expertise. Those are the, the four areas that I come in with. We're going to pray together. We're going to trust each other. We're going to be open to feedback. And we're going to respect each other's expertise. And for me, and I, I want you to speak into this too, because I've done so, I've worked on so many teams, especially with domestic abuse. My, I, I tend to become the default leader just because of, of who I am, what I've done, and all that stuff. But I like to lean heavily, even though I'm leading the meetings most of the time, on the advocate as the primary voice. And then that way, the pastor and the counselor become secondary voices to what we're hearing the advocates say. And the reason why I like doing that is I want the primary client to be the primary client so that we all are mm -hmm. on the same page. So I'm going to bounce it back over to you. You've worked on a lot of teams too. Is that similar structure to what you do or, or what might be some other helpful ways for our team to be unified? Absolutely. I think having the entire team at all the meetings is really important. So if the wife has a counselor, the husband has a counselor, right? So let's go victim perpetrator, um, victim's counselor and or advocate. 
So if, and not all victims have advocates, I want them to. So again, if you're interested in advocacy training, please avail yourself of that through Called to Peace and Dr. Deborah Wingfield, my plug there. Um, (laughs) They need more advocates. So yes, I would say if an advocate is present, they need to kind of run the meeting. And so advocates, if you're listening and you're like, dang, I don't know how to run a meeting, like please reach out. I'll help you figure it out. But I know Dr. Deborah's probably got tons of resources on that as well. And so does Joy Forrest. They're happy to help you. you know, to kind of do that, then the, the perpetrator's therapist and also um, the pastoral team. So everybody should be present. And I know that sometimes I end up being the default leader because right. I'm usually the one that said it was a good idea to have a meeting to begin right. with, <laughs> whether I'm working with a perpetrator or if I'm working with a survivor. So, <laughs> um, so, but I, it's the survivor's voice we need to hear the most because perpetrators, like you were saying, Chris, they are not always going to give you a hundred percent. They're going to give you the most sanitized possible version or an outright lie. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, if I'm being honest until well, they're one of the things repentant. I really appreciate about Greg Wilson and Jeremy Pierre's newest book, when home hurts is delineating that abuse is not just warped behavior. It's also warped perception. So Individuals who are perpetrating acts of violence, coercion, and control, while yes, there's active deceit, don't don't get me wrong, there's also a worldview that is feeding into that deceit, a perception that they may believe to be 100% true. So the presentation of being the victim themselves or being harmed or having no other choice may be part of that perception as well. And so as an interventionist, we're rarely receiving the clearest picture right? We're always counseling and caring from an agenda. Yes, absolutely. And, and I think, you know, another thing that I love from Greg's work is also understanding that perpetrators often have a trauma history of their own. Now, having said that, I'm going to say this very carefully, that does not excuse abuse ever. There are so many people who've been traumatized and they don't abuse other people. So let me just throw it out there. So yes, I think we need to treat the trauma for perpetrators as well. And as someone who also sees perpetrators, I I definitely do that. But again, safety first, right? We know that emotional and, you know, all of the, if we look at the wheel of power and control, all the spokes, you know, are Mm non-physical, but they're incredibly damaging, but we know that it doesn't take much and sin doesn't stay stagnant for it to become physical or sexual assault. Right. And so, and I think that's another thing for pastors to understand if your mindset is it's not that bad because what you're hearing isn't like, well, he's not beating her or whatever. Go listen to our last one about the effects of abuse. (laughs) Right. (laughs) And then also know that it, it, you are letting someone live with a baby lion. Baby lions are adorable and cute and they're like fun and they might nibble a toe, but eventually they get bigger and they will devour. Sin comes to steal and destroy and kill. The enemy is a jerk and he is going to try to just destroy everybody, the victim and the perpetrator. So like, bro, stand in the gap. This is high stakes stuff. Yeah, that's fantastic. And I think if anybody's unfamiliar with the power and control will, developed through uh, DAIP, uh, you can just Google Google that. It's an obser- I, I consider it an observational tool developed through interviews with 200 victims of domestic violence uh, constructed by Ellen Pence, and I think Michael Paymar was part of that. And certainly not a Christian tool, but I think observable of the experience. And one thing that coincides, I think, with our theology is, yes, all the spokes on that wheel are non-physical, but the rim of the wheel is physical. 
physical and sexual violence and the threat thereof is what holds all those things together. It makes them highly effective. So the illustration of the baby lion is perfect. It's like, yes, this quote-unquote low-level heat, which is a bad analogy because it's all hot, will escalate over time. And the threat is what makes it powerful. And so the idea of physical size, intimidation, ability, and past history, along with many other things, uh, come into play in how effective those pieces of the pie or pieces of the will really are. Yes. And and that's part of the thing Tabby, uh, Tabitha has just illustrated for us, um, one of the values of team building. Because what I tend to do in teams is I want an advocate or an informed counselor to bring that information to the team so that we all are aware that there's what we're seeing, here's how it coincides with what we know about abuse. Then we can answer some of the theological questions. But first, let's get a really good baseline on what we're dealing with. Absolutely. And also, when you're finding counselors to partner with who do perpetrator work, make sure they understand. I cannot tell you how many times I've spoken to other counselors and I'll ask them their experience and I'll be like, yeah, I've worked in that for years and years and years. And I'm like, well, what about perpetrator work? Like, tell me about this. Oh, well, you know, whatever. And I get like, not the greatest answer. Unfortunately, oftentimes the perpetrator is always seeing that person, um, you know, and like go and pushing for things like marriage counseling and restoration. And, you know, I would say that any faith-based person, we hope for, we hope for repentance, right? It's cool if reconciliation and restoration can happen, but that's not my goal. Right. That's not your goal. It's godliness, right? right? And sometimes godliness comes with some boundaries. I think First Corinthians is such a beautiful illustration of that. Paul is like, yeet this guy, yeet, for those who don't know, and are not over, over 30, means to forcibly object. Um, yeet this guy from the congregation, man, and let Satan have his way, maybe he'll come to repentance. Right. And we see in Second Corinthians that that straight up happened, right? Mm-hmm. So boundaries are healthy and godly and really important. And, and you need to know that people doing perpetrator work know how to do perpetrator work. It is an art as much as a science in some ways. It has to be led by the Holy Spirit. I know Chris and I have talked about the frustration level that mm-hmm. can occur because sometimes well, rarely are they honest and, yep. you know, especially out of the gate. And even if they seem willing, sometimes there is a far a facade of willingness until you start pressing the hard buttons and then they get a little bit sassy and that can be a tough place to be. So you need somebody that can do that work that can be all in and, and do it well. And, and is calling that perpetrator ultimately to repentance, right? Like right. we care about their souls too. I think that's one of the, um, one of the more difficult positions to find on the team. I'm glad you brought that up because so few counselors are really equipped and skilled at interacting with perpetrators because you do have to almost flip the script from what you normally do, um, kind of turn your counseling model a bit upside down, how you ask questions and how you proceed. And so there's just a handful of us, more now than ever, I will say that. There's more, there's more counselors doing that work now than ever. But for me, that's a unique place that I think the church could do a lot more because uh, we have, especially men, uh, although women do the work, obviously Tabitha is one of the ladies. She does a great job with perpetrators. Um, But there's men in our church and even couples in our church, I think, that could model, confront, hold accountable, and be part of that work and do it well because there are so few counselors. And it it is different. It is upside down from help me understand what the problem is so that I can help you walk through it. No, 
The problem's been defined. Now we're going to walk through it is a very different approach for a lot of counselors and difficult. So I think that is probably the hardest person to find on the team, but necessary and necessary to continue to build, build teams. So I hope you guys have really appreciated just the reminder that cooperation is necessary for us to do this work. And nobody, nobody is an island unto themselves. No one has all of the answers. And so pastor, um, you're doing great work, uh, but don't do it alone. Counselor, you're doing great work, but don't do it alone. Tabitha, you got any other thoughts about teamwork and cooperation before we wrap up today's podcast? I would just say, if we have any seminary counseling programs listening, any uh, other Christian counseling programs listening, raise men up to do the perpetrator work. We have amazing training opportunities out there for them. Um, I know I take interns and my interns do, they're stuck to me like glue and they do everything I do, which means they're going to do perpetrator work, whether they want to do or not. I would like them to want to, that would be my preference. But Chris, you have uh, something coming up, I do believe, in West Virginia mm-hmm. through PeaceWorks that will help people get trained in doing perpetrator work and running groups for the guys. So I, 10 out of 10, if you are a man listening to this and you're like, man, I can't believe people do this to other people. Hella praise, brother. Get in the game. <laughs> like, let's raise up strong men to, like, fight this fight, Right. And to say there, first of all, it shows survivors there are safe men in this world. And I can't tell you how many are like, I don't think good men exist. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, well, I'm pretty sure they do. I've met a few, but like, we need to know there's more of you, mm-hmm. right? And get in the game. This is a fight worth fighting. Is it sometimes making you want to bang your head on a wall? Absolutely 10 out of 10, but it is worth it. It is eternal. It is kingdom focused. Like get in the game with us and do this thing. And let's help perpetrators get to a place of repentance where their sin no longer serves them. Cause like, Hey, we do what serves us, right? Like we're sinful where their sin no longer serves them, where God is able to work repentance in their hearts. And maybe just maybe like me and Chris won't have a job. Exactly. Like that'd be amazing. That'd be awesome. I'd be all for retiring early. That would be great. Same. <laughs> well guys, we'll go like sit on a beach somewhere and rest. <laughs> <laughs> I'm in. All right. If you would like to learn more about PeaceWorks Live, which is the event that uh, Tabitha was promoting graciously for us, you can find out more at chrismoles.org. Also, you can find out more about Tabitha Westbrook at tabithawestbrook.com. And you are releasing a digital course uh, soon, actually just released. Fill us in a little bit more about that digital course. So it is a, it is, called Taking Every Thought Captive. And it has four classes. You can buy them individually or as a set. If you're only gonna be able to get one, get Mindful Connection, that is the foundation. Um, But Mindful Connection is being in the present moment, learning how to wrangle those thoughts and not let them overtake you. There's clinical evidence that practicing that 12 minutes a day reduces anxiety, depression, symptoms of ADHD, physical ailments. Like there's a lot, man. God made us really cool. Um, And then uh, stress and crisis management, which is what to do when it all hits the fan emotional fine-tuning, which is how to find, identify, and deal with your feels, um, and also how to change them when needed, and then relationships, which is how to find and maintain healthy relationships and relationships that aren't healthy, or as I like to call it, how to work and play well with others, Mm -hmm. and I would love to give people more information about that if they ever want it, and our uh, counseling practice is the journey and the process.com. And we love, I love to consult with pastors. I will help you write procedures. I've done that with churches, um, called to peace 
Church.org also comes alongside churches. They have some really cool things online called Protecting the Flock. So avail yourself. There's so many resources out there. We want to help you. So if you're like, I don't know where to start, start by reaching out. Well said. Thank you so much, buddy, for being part of the PeaceWorks podcast. It's been a real privilege having you, and it's been a privilege having all of you join us. We couldn't do this without everybody who listens to the PeaceWorks podcast. You are valued and appreciated, and we are so thankful that we get to share this uh, this time with you guys every week. So thanks again for listening to the PeaceWorks podcast, and until next time, God bless.